Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Basement Binge, the conclusion of Nolan November in December with Tenant. This has been such a blast doing Nolan November. I apologize for a little bit of the delay. The month of November and the first seven days of December are the busiest time of my life with work. So my problematic self decided it would be a good idea to do these episodes during that. Either way, here it is. But it, it worked out because unknowingly, I watched Tenet on December 2nd, 2021, which in itself is a palindrome. So that was kind of fitting. Either way, I'm super, super excited to talk about Tenet. This actually is the second review here at the Basin Binge on Tenor. I have one from its initial release last year. So if you want to get more after this, go check that out. So let's get started with the first segment here, Two Cents. So Two Cents is the first segment here at the Basin Binge, obviously, but it is completely spoiler-free. So if you haven't seen Tenet and you're wanting to know what I think of it spoiler-free, we're good to go. Let's get into it here. Tenet feels like an impossible task to review and somehow explain my love and appreciation for the film without being redundant with superlatives. Tenant is a really hard film to talk about on its own, but then when a film you love has that complexity, it gets even harder. I mean, it's hard to talk about Tenant, and it's hard to talk about films you love, and it's just, it's both at the same time. In Tom Schoen's book about Christopher Nolan, which I highly recommend if you enjoy Christopher Nolan, it's called The Nolan Variations. In the chapter about Tenet, it ends with him talking about an experience he had, Tom, trying to explain the scientific understanding he read about to Chris, like the scientific discovery that was made by someone else that Tom read and trying to explain that to Chris over the phone. Tom writes, after a few attempts to explain it to friends, it becomes clear to me that I can keep about half of it in my head at any given point, but I don't have a firm enough grasp of the material to relay it with any real confidence. It's secondhand knowledge. Experiencing the world of Tenet is secondhand knowledge more than with any other Christopher Nolan film or any film in general. That is the film's biggest flaw. Despite how exciting or expertly crafted it is, it's still the craft and discovery of someone else. It's Chris's fascination with time and his idea about it going backward and forward. But it isn't a concrete idea either. It's complete fantasy. It's not like there's lectures and, and, and all the declarations of a scientific discovery that we have to try and understand it. It is even more complicated than trying to explain a scientific understanding. There are reports and lectures and so many things written about it to make it scientifically sound. No matter how well this film is made, there are things that you're just not going to be able to grasp. The actors for the film admit the same thing, having to constantly ask Nolan for understanding, but his explanation's not really helping. Nolan himself even admits he couldn't get himself to think backwards. In the book I mentioned, he says, the massive challenge of this piece was that I thought I would be able to stop thinking forward, as it were, so I'd be thinking in reverse. I'm quite good at being able to pick up a particular way of intuiting things, and one of the things that excited me most about the project was that frustration. What I found was that you actually can't do it. None of us could intuit the backward version. We spent a lot of time at the script stage going, well, hang on, does that mean this and does that mean that? And how could you do a car chase that goes in two directions at once? Close quote. Right? The film is just impossibly to completely understand, so therefore, is it bad? The exact opposite, actually. It's why it's a great film to me. The premise is something that you can't completely explain. A flaw is built into it, but on completion, there is an understanding of what these characters have gone through and what has been accomplished. I couldn't even explain the plot to you completely after seeing it for the first time last year, but I understood the victory and the ending was emotionally rich and rewarding. To use a bit of language from the film, I didn't understand it, but I felt it. When you're in a theater watching this for the first time, at least as Nolan's hopes you would be or wherever you were watching it, 
You are the protagonist. So much of the technical work of the film is reminding you to stop trying to understand it at all. And not just a line that I mentioned, but the interesting sound mix and the unintelligible dialogue. This isn't something we completely understand, but we understand it's bad and that we have to stop it. The film intentionally reminds the audience of the unanswerable questions created with time travel because to even know its true nature is to lose. Repeatedly, the film is bringing up more questions than it has answers to. This is just the tip of the iceberg for my love for Tenet, a meticulously crafted sci-fi action blockbuster with some of the most confusing but exciting action sequences I've ever seen. Not many films make you feel like that kid or teen that you once were watching something you've never seen before. Tenet is a gift that just keeps on giving. But that's going to have to wrap up two cents because there's not really more that I can say about this film without just getting into redundant superlatives and keeping it spoiler free. So we're going to move on to the other segments. Quick announcements here before we do that. Before any of that, I want to thank everybody who's been involved in Nolan November from the comments on social media and participating on the polls and things that have been happening there or just listening to the episodes. Thank you. It has been a blast to do this. The reception and involvement in it has been a ton of fun, especially you individuals on Letterboxd. Even if I haven't directly quoted you in an episode, your reviews have been inspirational to the entire thing. I've mentioned Letterboxd a ton for those of you who aren't there. If you enjoy films, you should be on Letterboxd. So I will list a bunch of people who I recommend following so you can have a place to start on Letterboxd. Additionally, if you've been enjoying these episodes and you want to support the show, you can leave a review on Podchaser, podchaser.com slash the basement binge. The reason I recommend Podchaser, it allows you to review individual episodes so you can give me a response to the episode, not just the podcast as a whole. You can also review the podcast. It's also just really beneficial to the show, like ratings for anything, shows people the enjoyment they get out of it. So podchaser.com slash the basement binge, of course, linked in the show notes. Additionally, if you leave a review on Podchaser and you're in the US, I can share a screen pass with you, which is just three screen passes I can give away through Movies Anywhere. Sadly, it's only in the US. Additionally, if you just want one, reach out to me. I have three every month that I hardly ever use, so just reach out. Now that Nolan November is ending, just to give you some insight into what's coming, a short and fast Spider-Man marathon in preparation for No Way Home. If you want those episodes right now, go check out my friend at Matt Goes to the Movies. He's currently reviewing those Spider-Man 3 episode just released. And then after that, of course, Christmas, but then animation season two is coming next year. So let me know your thoughts on it. Here's just a little preview of some of the films I'll be reviewing. Some Disney classics like The Emperor's New Groove or Atlantis or Treasure Planet or Pixar's WALL-E, How to Train Your Dragon and Kung Fu Panda. Some recent favorites I have like The Mitchells vs. the Machines, Spies in Disguise, Lupin the Third, the First, or some other animated films I haven't seen like Redline, The Pinchcliffe Grand Prix, and Silent Voice, in addition to some others that I'm very, very excited to review. So if you have thoughts about those, send them over to me. Email, social media, however you can contact me is linked in the show notes. And lastly, I would love your thoughts on any films you would love to see a podcast episode on after that's over. So that's going to be the first part of the year, just like January and part of February. After that, I don't have the schedule plan yet. So let me know what series and films you'd like to see me review. That's all the announcements here at The Basement Binge. Let's get into the next segment right after this brief interruption. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's move on to the next segment, Pick Your Poison. If you're new here to The Basement Binge, you might be asking, what is Pick Your Poison? Well, I'll tell you, it is the rating scale that I made up for The Basement Binge 
to measure the bingeability of the film, how would I choose to interact with it after watching it this time? There are four options to never watch it again, which is self-explanatory, to stream it, which means it's on a service you're already paying for and you're just looking for something to watch when you're browsing, you'd be willing to click on it. Above that is to rent it. In the right circumstances, you'd pay a few dollars to rewatch it. Above that is to buy it. You probably saw it coming, whether it's digitally or physically on Blu-ray, buy it to view as many times as you would like. If there ever was a film deserving of the rating of a buy, it is Tenant. I have rewatched this film more than any other film that has been released in the last four years. Not the last five years because Your Name came out in 2016, but in the last four years, there's not been a film that has been released that I've rewatched more. Rewatchability is built into Tenant. And it was really interesting reading in the book that I mentioned how Christopher Nolan talked about how he was a struggle editing to decide between the audience in the theater or the audience at home rewatching it and taking it apart. And I think he walked that line really well. So obviously it's a buy. I don't have anything else to say there. Let's move on to the next segment, live up. This is where I talk about my expectations, whether it's on an initial watch, if I can remember them or what it is on a rewatch and what is it like to come back to the film? What are you looking forward to or hoping? And is it able to live up to those things? And I couldn't even begin to possibly explain what my expectations were for Tenant way back in August of 2020 when it was initially released. It is hard to go back to that because you can't unsee Tenant. Once you see Tenant, the initial shock of it wears off. All films are that way, but it seems more so with Tenant because of the uniqueness of it. I went back to the trailers and trying to put myself in the mindset of 2019 in December and how amped I was after seeing the prologue opening night in The Rise of Skywalker and IMAX and how that trailer dropped on YouTube like a few days before and then how I was surprised by it and then the trailers that came later, all of those things and the delays and whatever, whatever, and then being in that theater. It is a different world. What I can say is that sitting in the theater watching the Stalsk 12 temporal pincer move is among my all-time favorite movie moments ever. I cannot adequately explain the excitement and adrenaline of that moment that I felt. Even on rewatch, it doesn't reach that level, but it's always a reminder of what that moment was, and, and I love it. So to move on from that, what were my expectations coming back to it time and time again? Like I said, I've rewatched this a lot. So coming back to it again, first, I expected to appreciate it more like I do every single time. My first three initial washes brought the film up to five stars. It started at four and each time it went up half a star to five. I also expect to find more depth and emotion in these characters to develop more empathy for Kat specifically. That was a character who I wanted to focus on this time to understand the science of this temporal manipulation a little bit more, but mostly just to enjoy every single moment and get excitement and enjoyment out of it. So this time around, it did live up to all of those things except for one. I think that for the time being, I have peaked in my understanding of the science of temporal manipulation and inversion. There are moments that I kept pausing to talk myself through how a character would be when and where they would be and how it all works. And every moment I could explain, I understood how they were moving forward or backwards and how they would be able to be moving forward or backward in that moment. But there were many times that my brain just refused to comprehend it fully. I think those of you who have rewatched the film might understand what I'm talking about. Some examples of this, Neil coming back to unlock the door at the very end, or the red room and the blue room in interrogation with Seder. I have dissected that and it, I understand it, it is confusing be, because the character's life continues forward, but the world around them is what goes backwards. So even if it's in the past, it's technically still the future of the character's lives. And so it's hard for my brain to dissect those two things and also understand it is really hard to understand, even when you understand someone's moving backwards, 
how their actions move backwards in perception of other people moving forward and how that works like Neil being able to block a bullet by moving backwards. I, it is confusing to me. But again, like I said in two cents, it doesn't take away from the film in any way. It actually adds to my enjoyment of it. But I did gain new understanding of something it, it, slightly. Maybe it was always clear to other people, but for me, it was always confusing. I finally understood Sater's pulse tracker and how it relates to the algorithm and the explosion at the end of the film. The explosion isn't connected to his Fitbit, which is what I always thought. That is simply on a timer set to go off at a predetermined time. His Fitbit simply will send a signal to something that will then send out communication about the location of the capsule with the algorithm in it. That communication will be in the record for those in the future to find, to then go dig up the capsule and have the algorithm and, and use it to reverse the world. The explosion was just to bury the capsule and the algorithm in it. When Sater dies, the location of the capsule is simply given to the future, whether that's 10, 50, 100, whenever, however further into the future is, the communication is there. The communication is sent out in the moment he dies. So let's say he dies August of 2020. That communication is sent out into the ether of whatever in August of 2020. So whether it's August 2030, or January 3050 or whatever, that communication is there because it has been there for that time. They're able to look at that whenever they are, go to the location, find the algorithm, dig it up, and even if it takes them years to use the algorithm and to understand it to invert the world, theoretically, the inversion of the world causes everyone in the past to die instantly. Everything is undone. So my brain had a hard time comprehending how does him dying cause the end of the world you know like how do they happen at the same time if it happens in the future and just being able to distinguish how the events happen separately like they do in our normal understanding of time but the consequences of those things in the future have immediate repercussions in the now whenever now is and it, it was difficult especially from my understanding of it on first watch because it wasn't something that i went back to dissect later my brain had this weird idea that if Seder died after the explosion somehow the communication doesn't go out to the future and that's why a cat had to wait to kill him the communication goes out to the future as soon as he dies doesn't matter when or how when he dies the fitbit causes some type of relay that sends communication into the system the people in the future simply retrieve the communication from its existence in that system what matters is making sure that the algorithm isn't in the capsule for the people in the future to dig up however many years later it is. From the looks of it, that hole that the capsule is going into is pretty deep. So once it goes in there, there's no getting it out. So the tenant organization, knowing the time of the explosion because they're in the future, and, and the protagonist is specifically at multiple points in the film about two weeks past the explosion. So they know when it happened. They plan an attack around the explosion. One group starting at the explosion, moving into the past for 10 minutes and then being evacuated at the other end of Stalks 12, 10 minutes before the explosion happened. The other group moving forward starts where those, those inverted individuals are being evacuated 10 minutes before the explosion and works toward the explosion to be evacuated near it at the time of the explosion, the same time that the inverted individuals are arriving. The reason that they must get the algorithm out before is that the explosion buries it. That explosion on ground level buries everything beneath it. The plan was to get the algorithm and then run back up the tunnel the way they came. But Sater's dude booby-trapped it and closes it off. So Neil had to pull them out of the hole because even if they were able to stop whatever that dude's name is and get the algorithm, they would have just been buried down there with everything else and then the future people would have just dug it up in addition to some human remains so that's why the urgency to pull them out is and that's why it's a victory because even if they have the algorithm they also have to get out of that tomb the reason that 
cat had to distract him is because he couldn't know that they had pulled it out or else he has the ability to inform people and perform a temporal pincer move of himself and change things. He had to die thinking he had successfully given it to the future. And I don't know why that was so hard for me to understand for the longest time, but I finally understood it this time. So that, yes, it, it, to answer the question of the segment, did it live up? Yes, it, even as it didn't live up to gaining complete new understanding of how things work and every character's temporal inversion or what in every moment, I don't understand it to that level. But I understand that I don't understand it, but that I understand the movie. And it, it works really well in favor of the movie, surprisingly. It's one of those films that you're like immediately excited to understand more, but also accept that you won't and you're okay with that. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, let's move on to the next segment, Binge Points. This film is full of tons of rich details. Nolan's attention to detail and consistency and continuity is incredible. For example, to start, the colors of red and blue, red being forward moving, blue being inverted. The Warner Brothers logo is red and the Syncopy logo is blue. The music plays backwards over the blue logos, which is just a genius detail. Getting into the actual film, the opera siege is a blind to take the CIA guy who they end up saving and the piece of the algorithm that he has. The Russians that the protagonist was with were actually satyrsmen. He just didn't know that yet. The only reason that they weren't able to get the piece of the algorithm from him like they were planning is because the protagonist, quick on his feet, knew that his exit was no longer safe. They took a different one with the piece of the algorithm. But it didn't work anyways because the whole thing was a setup by the Ukrainians so that they could end up with the last piece of the algorithm. They ended up getting it anyway, and that's why the trucks in place scene had to happen because they had it from the opera siege. I also love how from the start of the film, we understand clearly that the protagonist cares about innocent life. He would run into the burning building, a characterization that I absolutely love. And we see that from the get-go, that even if you don't understand absolutely everything, something that you can understand from the prologue is his care for innocent lives. And he's just, the, the character of the protagonist is really fun, particularly how he was the one who set this whole thing up. The future protagonist himself, knowing that a fresh face, a fresh protagonist was needed to get close to Seder, someone who he didn't know. So he goes into the past to recruit himself. Maybe even he set it up for him to be caught by Seder's men in Kiev so that he could fake his death with a suicide pill and end up in a coma and therefore be dead to be able to be a part of Tenant. I don't know. It's just fun to think about. In that line of thinking, I also noticed this time around the intense planning that goes into place for everything to work out. Like that one guy whose sole mission was to be there for the protagonist to have a car to get into with a GPS already set up. His mission was to be there with a car. Or how near the end of the film, that black and yellow boat that they ride on, they're introverted so the boat is going backwards in time. So they're currently in Oslo, but they have to end up at the rally point in Trodenheim with Ives and his team in the past. So the tenant organization has to make sure that they have a boat that went from Trodenheim in the past to Oslo at that specific time that they're, they were there in Oslo so that they could get on it in reverse and ride it into the past back to Trotemheim. Incredible planning that takes place. Of course, this is something you would never notice until you know the film and really think about everything that has to go into effect for these things to work. It's, it's incredible. Speaking of Oslo, I also love how the Freeport fight with himself, the protagonist, each version of himself gets better at the fight with the more experience of fighting someone inverted while the person they are fighting is getting less experienced. So in the room near the garage door thing that he comes flying into with all the paintings, the forward protagonist in the suit is winning, but closer to the turnstile, the inverted protagonist in the mask is winning because each one of them with, is at less experience at their respective start and more experience at their respective end. So in that room with a garage thing, 
when his arm gets stabbed, the protagonist who's forward moving in the suit is at the end of the fight, having experienced and figured out how to fight an inverted antagonist. While the protagonist in the mask, he is just barely getting into the fight for the first time. And so their experience grows inverse to each other. And it's just interesting to see how each one starts to win as they get more experienced while the other one's getting less experienced. It's also interesting how in that same fight, the protagonist is intentionally firing the gun and missing so that the other version of himself can't use it on him but his thinking is backwards, right? So he's actually loading the gun for the individual. So he's thinking about it. He's not quite there yet to the complete understanding of how the things work with time, but he's trying and it's interesting. Seeing the inversion, it's fun attention to details like that. Of course, like everybody sees the inverted versions of themselves, these characters, be it Neil or the protagonist at the end of the hallways, those types of things. Or when they drive out on the ambulance, they're moving forward and we can see two individuals pushing a stretcher inverted back into a shipping container. Great attention to detail. There's this great interview that Nolan was on about Tennant, and he was asked about the theory that was going around about Neil, that he is Kat's son. His answer was very cryptic, but he does talk about how everything, any theory he sees about his film, every detail in the film is intentional. And he always supports theories that from, in his words, are from the text. So looking at the text, Kat caring for Neil and wanting to say goodbye to him feels like it means something, especially combined with the last shot of the film being Kat and her son. With the words of Neil saying, it's the bomb that didn't go off. That's a real power to change the world. Especially because his name is Maximilian, spelled L-I-E-N, who then becomes Neil, which is the last part of his name backwards. Thanks, Mike, for that detail. So I, I don't know. Do you believe it or not? I think I do. That interview that I'm referring to is on a Happy, Sad, Confused podcast episode with Chris. There's two of them. Two of my favorite interviews with Chris ever. I will link both in the show notes. I recommend them if you enjoy Chris. Happy Sad Confused is the name of the podcast, but I'll specifically list those two episodes below. So those are all the details from within the film. Let's get into the production details. There, there isn't much here to specifically talk about beyond what we already know. It's Christopher Nolan. Things are done physically. They're in camera. There was no green screen used. This film, despite how complex it is, has so much in-camera work done. For example, this film has less than 280 visual effects shots. Visual effects meaning CGI. The Dark Knight, for comparison, had 650. The Dark Knight Rises had 450. Dunkirk had 429. Almost half, not quite, but almost half the amount that they had in The Dark Knight Rises. About a third of what they had in The Dark Knight. And you look at those two films and it's just, what? How did they do that? It's, it's incredible. So cars flipping over, a real 747 crashing into a building, which what they did is they had a plane that they went from like a plane junkyard that was never going to fly again, clean it up. And then there's, of course, like a runway there for them to move the planes around in this plane junkyard. So they just built a set there and crashed it into it and turned out to be pretty affordable. A large scale Stalls 12 set that they completely built. Fights with inverse and normal protagonists. All of it's in camera. Reading about this intense production that they went through, Nolan said, we learned very quickly that you can't just steal something from another scene and run it backwards. So there was a lot of work that went into making things work on their own instead of just being a cheap rip from something else just backwards. Like that scene that I mentioned earlier where the protagonist has to fight himself inverted in opposite directions. John David Washington had to fight as a protagonist moving forward, as the antagonist moving forward, then the protagonist backwards and the antagonist backwards. So he was fighting four different ways. And you can really tell in that fight scene in the two of them that we get that it's not just either one played in an opposite direction. And it really, really works well. 
They also had cars that were in a real street, which had their axles inverted so that they could drive them backwards Then the rest with the rest of the cars moving forward. They had stunt drivers learn to drive backwards cars so they would be facing in the car the wrong direction, like looking out the rear window so that the turning wheels would be in the back so that it would look like a real turn done that way. If you don't know, with the turning wheels, the wheels that will point your car in the back, you have much tighter, more aggressive turns. And so having to chase that way, it, the car would look different. So instead of just like flipping the entire wheelbase around, they had some rigs that allowed them to drive these cars backwards and really flip them and turn them and have it look real. There's this great article that I'll link in the show notes where the visual effects supervisor talks about all the incredible things they did to make these things happen. Like that simultaneous explosion of the building, inverted and normal at Stalls 12, at the five minute mark where the two blue team and red team blow up a building seconds after one another. That is an incredible shot. How they did it is they just had miniatures at about one third scale, so still pretty big. And then they just blew it up, matched the camera angle with the building and blew one up at the top and blew one up at the bottom. And they had two angles for it so that they could cut between the two. And then they just, of course, they just comped them together to make it look like one seamless thing. And it is super seamless. So well done. I, I love that. Now, another detail here that I think is really cool that went into the inspiration of the film. Now, Christopher Nolan hasn't talked about this specifically, but you can tell it, it, it's not a coincidence. So the Seder Square, if you don't know, look it up, Google it, a picture of it will make more sense. But the long and short of it is that it's a palindrome square that has been discovered by archaeologists all around Europe, even one dating back to Pompeii in about 75 AD. There's lots of ideas about its relationship to Christianity and other religious importance. Whatever the exactness is that has yet to be determined, it's appeared over history with a common trait of being associated with metaphysicality and the human relationship to it, whether it's in Pompeii or in the other places they found it. Either way, what is this? The word Seder, Arepo, Tenant, Opera, and Rotas in a square, five by five square. In the square, you can read it as a palindrome. So from left to right, going down, starting at the top right, or from right to left, going up, starting at the bottom right, or top to bottom, going to the right, starting at the top left, or reading bottom to top and moving left, starting from the bottom right. It always says the same thing. Seder, Arepo, Tenant, Opera, Rotas. The first and fifth word of the square are reverse of each other, Seder and Rotas. The second and fourth are also reversed, Arepo and Opera. And Tenant in the middle is a palindrome vertically and horizontally within the square. You got to look up a picture of it. It's cool. And all of those things within the Seder square appear in the film. Seder, of course, is the main antagonist's last name. As we all know, Arepo is the artist who makes the fake Goya paintings. Tenant is the name of the film and the organization. Opera, the film starts with an opera siege. And then Rotas is the name of the security organization at the Freeports. And way beyond just being a little Easter egg, it's cool to think about how this might be Nolan's own Seder Square, using the cinematic equivalent of a palindrome to get us to look at metaphysicality and our relationship to it once again. Clearly, Nolan's belief in this metaphysical is closely related to our experience with time and all the uniqueness of that, and always evaluating our relationship to those things and our responsibility in it, which matches perfectly with the other theories and ideas of what the Seder Square actually is. It's really cool. For the last production detail I want to mention here, I have to quote the great Mike Apps, of course. He reviewed Tenant the same day that I watched it on Letterboxd. It's his like seventh review of it or something like that. He has great insights for the film. So this is what he said, quoting the film, the policy is to suppress. And then Mike, quote, 
The relationships are suppressed because relationships can't happen in the reality of top secret missions. A bromance blooms in the shadows, glimpses of a deeper emotional connection flicker, but by the time it's realized, it's ultimately too late and always will be. A platonic relationship between a spy who can't help but exude warm humanity and a woman trapped in an abusive marriage develops. Glimpses of their humor and chemistry peek through, but ultimately can't be pursued. The reality of the film is you can't know each other. People pass each other by, focus on their jobs first, before each other. When people complain about lack of character, I don't blame him, but it's there. Close quote. The ending of the film was originally going to be focused on Kat and the protagonist, but the writing didn't take it there. No one talks about how that was the idea, but as writing, it, it, it felt forced. So it changed to Neil and the protagonist breaking up, the guys splitting up. Endings are always difficult, but this one in particular, because we know more is there. Nolan talks about his entire crew getting into this scene that they all loved it, which he said was really rare. Normally, they're all kind of involved in their own thing, you know, whatever, let their actors do their thing. But with this particular one, they were all really engaged in it. Well, and, and one last detail I want to mention here is about Michael Caine. I love that Chris let Michael Caine's character be named Sir Michael. I adore that scene between him and the protagonist and having a monopoly on snobbery. I love the way that it's performed and the dialogue. Even more so knowing that this is probably the last time we'll get Michael Caine in a Christopher Nolan film. If you didn't know, he's expressed his retirement from acting. In an interview that I'll also link, he talked to, when he was talking about it, he said, I have a spine problem which affects my legs, so I can't walk very well. And I think that the sitting scene, him having a scene where he's sitting is due to Christopher Nolan's respect for him as an actor and also respecting his physical state. And as someone who also has back problems that affects my legs and who adores Michael Caine and his performance, particularly as a Christopher Nolan character, there's something about this scene that feels really special to me. And I just really love it for that reason. But those are all the binge points that I have. So let me know if you've got any other cool details. Let's move on to the second to last segment here, least and likes. This is where I talk about my least favorite scene, my favorite scene. I'm sorry. I do not have a least favorite scene. I genuinely do not have one. There is not a moment that I'm not engaged in what is happening in the film. Everything enthralls me about this film. I love it. So actually, no, I'm, I'm not sorry. I love this movie. I'm not ashamed of loving this movie wholeheartedly. So what is my favorite? I really wanted to pick Stalls 12. Like I talked about, I love that scene. But there are two other scenes that I just loved this time around. They, they're kind of a surprise to me, but it's honest to my experience this time around with the film. The first is the protagonist talking with Kat at dinner and the great lines that reveal he's totally lying and out of his element. I love those lines. Where'd you go, Mars? More than just funny lines, there's this immediate relationship that forms between Kat and the protagonist, and it's genuine. Then the fight that follows right after, I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. It was ad-libbed by John David Washington. The kitchen fight with the protagonist walking with absolute swagger and confidence just to come out of the building and surprise Kat and fill her with hope. Powerful scene and just fun. It's engaging. It's great entertainment. The second is when Kat dives off the boat at the end of the movie near the conclusion. The tension in that moment with everything happening in Stalls 12 and her trying to trick Seder and, and all those things, it is part of Fantastic Climax, but I also love the audience's realization with Kat that she is now the woman she envied. She's free. It's a very empowering scene for her, especially the way that she says, I couldn't let him think he'd won on the radio to the protagonist. Not only is she free because he's dead and no longer there to abuse her, she is free because she freed herself from him, knowing that she won and knowing that he knows she won. It's, it's, it's a very, very powerful scene and I love what it means for her in a great scene. Say what you will about Christopher Nolan's writing. He knows how to write a cathartic ending for a character's emotional journey near the end of his films. So well done. 
I also just can't finish the podcast without mentioning Ludwig Jorgsen's score. I've talked about it more on the other episode, but this is one of the greatest scores I have ever heard. Not only is it great to listen to on its own, but it feeds each moment with the energy that it needs. From the pulse pounding trucks in place, which might be my favorite track of all time, to the emotional motifs of Cat and Neil, or the dread that the theme for Seder gives me, even the emotionally rich ending song, The Protagonist, as it's called. Each moment is just full of the underlying energy that that scene needs, and it's very powerful. Even the genius way he prepares us to hear Travis Scott's voice for the credits by including snippets of his voice throughout the score. Again, the trucks in place scene. Ludwig Jornsson is underrated. He is probably one of my favorite composers ever. So with that, I can now move on to the last segment, Fall In. This is where, if you're new, I talk about meanings, messages, takeaways from the film, themes, those types of things. What is the moral of the story, as my dad used to always tell me. And to that, I'm going to use this great line from the film. The bullet wouldn't have moved if you haven't put your hand there. Either way you run the tape, you made it happen. Clearly, the film is telling us the importance of acting. Neil's expression of what's happens happened and the, and the idea of faith gives me a bit of a brain pretzel, but it's true. The faith in good people takes an action that is necessary. That's what has happened more than anything. Sacrifice and all, it's been done. There's no change in that. But if I think about that too much, I'm going to get more confused, so I've got to move on. Free will is something that I'm a firm believer in, but more than just like, oh, we have our own ability to choose and that's great. The need to use those choices wisely, to choose good, to choose right. That faith in humanity or in reality is the reality that people are making the choice for good, that there might be hundreds of bombs that don't go off because of faith in the mechanics of humans, so to speak. Once again, to quote Mike Apps, at the close of Noel November, it's only fitting. We have a responsibility with our free will. We have to try to do good because if we don't, the world will be overcome by encroaching darkness. The entropy of time going forwards and backwards is a metaphor for this, light versus darkness. Forward entropy or light and reverse entropy or darkness. As Neil explains in the Rotus container, the flow of forward entropy or light pushing against reverse entropy or darkness. And that's why reality continues to exist. Otherwise, end of play. Once again, Mike, wonderfully said. That's a great place to conclude fall in. End of play comes when the force towards light stops being the main force. So there we go. Powerful film. I, I, I don't know what, I, I feel like I need to say more. Nolan November has been a ton of fun and I, and I love the film of Tenet. And I feel like there should be some big cathartic top that I can zoom in on with my voice somehow or something to, to match that. But I can't match that precision. And it's something that trying to do that, even though a podcast is very different from a film, trying to create the same thing in writing and, and understanding the need for things to resolve. Every podcast episode or every film or every story comes to an end and the need for those things to be complete. Things don't end until they're complete. And even though it's now December, Noel November wouldn't have been complete without this tenant episode. So now it can be. If you want to be involved in what comes after, follow me in social media. Let me know what Christmas films are good that I should check out this year. Additionally, Spider-Mans are coming up. And then we have animation season again. And then after that, it is an open book right now. It's a ways away, but still let me know what series, what films should I check out? I've got a long list, but I'm always adjusting my schedule. So if you got some suggestions, social media, email, however you want to contact me, all of those are in the show notes in which you can. Additionally, 
follow me on Letterboxd. If you're not on Letterboxd, get yourself on Letterboxd. Like I mentioned, all those people will be listed in the show notes, so you have a great place to start. Thank you for everybody who contributed, listened to, enjoyed Noel November with me. It's weird that it's coming to an end, but it has been a blast. This is, this is, I have thought and planned a Nolan November for the longest time, and this is in every way lived up to those expectations that I had. So thank you, everyone who listened for making that reality. It's the expectations I had are way more than just me recording my voice, but the, the reaction and excitement I've had with other people about it has been very rewarding. So thank you. So once again, to close out, this is the Basin Binge. This is the end of an old November. My name is Harrison, and that's all for now. Ciao, ciao. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 